this week, EP tries to get plan confirmed, CPC evidentiary hearing begins in PG&E amended plan, Malincrod announces global opioid settlement terms, proposed capital structure fix. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Connor Skelding. And I'm Raksha Manjanath. Stick around for a deep dive discussion on Vicentin, a rundown on Argentina, and a comparison of the CACs in Lebanese and Argentine sovereign bonds with LADAM team. It's Sunday, March 1st. EP Energy's confirmation hearing spanned three days with topics including challenges to plan feasibility and the debtor's good faith plan. Plan backers Apollo and Elliott, as well as the official Committee of Unsecured Creditors and the RBL exit lenders, all expressed support for the debtor's plan. The hearing is focused on two remaining substantive objections from the ad hoc group of one and one eighth, one and one quarter note holders and the MSB royalty owners. The ad hoc group had argued that the one and one eighth lien notes cannot be reinstated under the plan without the payment of the nearly $178 million, quote, applicable premium, and that thus the debtor's plan is not feasible. The MSB owners joined in questioning the plan's feasibility and asserted that it was not proposed in good faith because of the involvement of Apollo and Access Industries employees in multiple capacities during the restructuring process. The first day of the confirmation hearing saw testimony from the debtor's CEO, Russell Parker, CRO, David Rush of FTI Consulting, and Avinash D'Souza of Evercore, the debtor's investment banker. During the second day of the hearing, the court heard testimony from Carol Flatten, chairwoman of the Special Committee of the Board of Directors, the ad hoc group's feasibility expert, Joseph Spellman, a reserve engineer, and Michael O'Hara of PJT Partners, the ad hoc group's financial advisor, also took the stand. The hearing is scheduled to continue this week, with closing arguments set for March 5th at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Last Monday evening, Judge Dennis Montali issued a decision denying the securities plaintiff's motion for application of Bankruptcy Rule 7023 to claims asserted in the securities class action and for establishment of a schedule to determine whether to certify the class of the securities plaintiffs with regard to the filing of a class proof of claim. Also, the CPUC, or California Public Utilities Commission, on Tuesday began a scheduled seven-day evidentiary hearing to consider regulatory approval of the PG&E debtor's amended plan of reorganization. The hearing was before Administrative Judge Peter V. Allen and CPUC Commissioner Mary Bell Batcher is scheduled through Wednesday, March 4th, and will focus on witness testimony and documentary evidence, with a decision on approval or disapproval not expected until April after post-hearing briefing. PG&E Corporation CEO William D. Johnson was the first to take the witness stand on Tuesday and after testimony was cross-examined on the stated goals of the plan, including, quote, fair and expeditious compensation to wildfire victims and, quote, transformative change to ensure the prioritization of safety and customer welfare. On Wednesday, Judge Montali took the objections of the official tort claimants committee, joined by the PG&E debtors, to the claims filed by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, and the California Governor's Office of Emergency Services, or Cal OES, under submission after hearing oral argument in the bankruptcy court. 
FEMA has asserted $3.94 billion in claims, and Cal OES has asserted $2.7 billion in claims against the debtors related to wildfire related costs. There is approximately $2.4 billion duplication between the claims, ultimately resulting in an aggregate alleged amount owed of $4.24 billion. And on Thursday, Administrative Law Judge Sophia Park entered a decision approving the proposed multi-party settlement of the CPUC OII related to 2017 and 2018 wildfires, but with certain modifications, including additional $462 million in penalties. The parties have 30 days to appeal the order. Mallinckrodt announced an agreement in principle on the terms of a global settlement that would resolve all opioid-related claims against the company, specialty generics-focused subsidiaries, including SpecGX, LLC, and the company's other subsidiaries, in exchange for $1.6 billion over eight years. As part of the settlement, the company expects to file Chapter 11 petitions for its specialty generics business, which manufactures certain generic opioid products, in the coming months. Mallinckrodt PLC and its specialty brands-related subsidiaries would not be part of the Chapter 11 filing, according to the release. The agreement in principle has been reached with a court-appointed plaintiff's executive committee in the opioid multi-district litigation and is supported by a group of 47 state and U.S. territory attorneys general, Mallinckrodt said on Tuesday. The company also announced entrance into a support agreement with certain term lenders and note holders as new lenders to amend its credit agreement to allow for a new four-year $800 million term loan, the proceeds of which would be used to repay the outstanding four and seven-eighths notes to April 2020, quote, and additionally to partially repay loans and terminate corresponding commitments under the revolving credit facility in respect of revolving lenders who agree to extend their loans and commitments to March 2024. Pursuant to a separate exchange agreement, certain senior note holders have agreed to tender their five and three quarters notes due 2022 in exchange for new 10% secondly notes due April 2025. The support and exchange agreement was reached with note holders Aurelius Capital Master Limited, Franklin Advisors Incorporated, and Capital Research and Management Company. These funds are also lenders under Mallinckrodt's credit agreement and, in addition to other lenders, are signatories to the support agreement for the proposed credit amendment and new loan agreement. On its fourth quarter earnings call, management was asked if the agreement in principle was, quote, too good to be true in ring-fencing the opioid liabilities in the specialty generic segment Chapter 11 process, thereby protecting existing Mallinckrodt shareholders. Mark Casey, chief legal officer for Mallinckrodt, replied that the agreement does indeed, quote, ring-fence opioid liabilities, noting that Chapter 11 is, quote, a well-tested vehicle to manage otherwise, quote, unmanageable liabilities. Casey also guided that the company expects to file late in the first quarter or early second quarter of this year, adding that it was not yet clear what the, quote, flavor of the plan would be, whether prepackaged or not. You can find an updated tear sheet and a new cap stack pro forma for the contemplated refinancing transactions on reorg.com. Turning, as we do most every week, to Puerto Rico, on Thursday, Monoline Insurers, AMBAC, Assured Guarantee, Financial Guarantee Insurance Co., and National Public Finance Guarantee Corp., along with the Bank of New York Mellon, as fiscal agent for certain bonds, filed their respective motions to dismiss the revenue bond adversary proceedings, challenging the proof of claims and liens asserted by certain bondholders. The adversary proceedings were commenced by the Promesa Oversight Board in each instance and in connection with the complaint challenging the claims and liens asserted against HTA, the official committee of unsecured creditors.
The motions to dismiss challenged what they characterize as a, quote, kitchen sink approach in the claimed challenges. In large part, the motions to dismiss are similar in substance as acknowledged by the movements in a footnote explaining that although there are, quote, critical differences between the PRIFA, CCDA, and HTA revenue bonds that will become prominent at other stages of these proceedings. For purposes of the motions to dismiss, quote, many of the arguments are substantially similar across all the motions, with each motion also addressing any issues unique to the complaint being addressed. On Tuesday, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development officials told the leadership of the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority that about $1.9 billion in HUD Community Development Block Grant Disaster Relief, or CDBGDR, funds that will become available to rebuild the island's electric grid must be used for projects that the U.S. Department of Energy supports and that are aligned with the Federal Emergency Management Agency project approval decisions. PREPA Executive Director Jose Ortiz said during a Wednesday meeting of the Utility Governing Board. Other top stories last week were Court approves McDermott dip financing on final basis Bid procedures for sale of debtors technology business With voting complete, debtors preview substantial support for prepackaged plan Adyen revises 2020 guidance down on coronavirus impact expects adjusted EBITDA of about $870 million, year-over-year production volume declines of 70% in February, 40% in March, and lastly, a general roundup of coronavirus coverage. Next is Jim Holloway with The Week Ahead. Well, good morning, everyone. That was definitely one of the weeks J.P. Morgan warned us about. Specifically, prices will fluctuate, as the great Gilded Aid financier was alleged to have said. Nevertheless, life rolls on with its usual assortment for us of hearings and earnings. So, Monday, March 2nd, the CPUC plan evidentiary hearing continues in PG&E. Runs through Wednesday. There's a first-day hearing in Alpha Guardian, and we have earnings from Intel, Sat, and GTT. Tuesday, March 3rd, the Unity Lease Adversary Trial in Windstream, an omnibus hearing in Bordenderry, and a pre-trial conference in Sanchez related to the Gavilan operator dispute. And there's earnings from Hexion, Tidewater, and Parker Drilling. Wednesday, March 4th, summary judgment oral arguments in EP Energy, sale hearing in Approach Resources, and omnibus hearings in Payless and Insys. Earnings from J. Jill and Owens and Minor, and 5 p.m., it is the early participation deadline for the California resources exchange offer. Thursday, March 5th, confirmation closing arguments in EP Energy and second day hearing in American Commercial. There's earnings from Hovnanian, Talon Energy, ADT, and APX. Friday, March 5th, a motion to compel on status hearing in Rockford versus Malincrode. That looks to be it for me. Please see our weekly Ford calendar released bright and early every Monday for even more. And back to y'all. And now, here's the LATAM team discussing Vicentin, Argentina, and CACs in Lebanese and Argentine sovereign bonds. Thanks. My name is Kyle Owusu. I'm a director at Reorg for the Reorg Americas team um, specializing in LATAM coverage. I'm here with my colleagues Lev and Santiago, and we are going to talk about uh, Argentina generally, uh, Vicentin, and then we're going to do a comparison of Argentine and Lebanese um, CAC clauses in sovereign bonds. Um, so let's start off uh, with Argentina. 
Um, around February 15th, you had the government um, sending an RFP request for a proposal um, to a group of 15 potential financial advisors. Um, a few days later, the IMF came out with a release saying that Argentina's debt is unsustainable. Um, and the release also said that a definitive debt operation is needed to help restore debt sustainability with high probability, which is the IMF's way of suggesting that the creditors should take an NPV haircut. Um, so Santiago, what, what's going on right now? Um, should we expect to see a deal uh, or should we still expect to see a deal rather by March 31st? Yeah, so um, the Argentine government's discussions with the IMF and private bondholders have picked up recently. As we've gotten closer to March and we're getting closer to the deadline, we've consulted with uh, government and, and private uh, creditors, um, and they believe it's very unlikely that a deal will be reached by the deadline originally proposed. Uh, originally, the economy ministry's uh, debt negotiation schedule was that by the fourth week of February, the government should have selected and signed an agreement with agents and financial advisors and begin a 10-day meeting schedule with external debt holders about the debt sustainability um, uh, analysis plan presented by Guzman to Congress. This will be followed by the final structure of the offer as part of its external debt sustainability plan and a launch of the offer in the second week followed by a roadshow and a press release issued announcing the results of the offer. Now, we know that this week, Argentina's economy minister, Guzman, and the IMF representative for Argentina, Sergio Chodos, were here in New York City and Washington, D.C., where they met with the IMF and private bondholders, uh, where they had closed-door meetings. It was speculated in the local press that they would test proposing a haircut to bondholders, but we haven't heard any confirmation so far. Uh, when I say local press, I'm, I'm discussing Argentine uh, press. Um, a key event in the debt negotiations is the IMF declaration that Argentine debt is unsustainable and that private bondholders must make a meaningful contribution that it made in a statement published on February 12th. Um, this is really important for the government and will be most likely used in its uh, negotiations uh, with bondholders. Um, however, sources close to negotiations have told us that some bondholders won't accept any haircut on the principle, even taking into account uh, the IMF requesting a meaningful contribution from Argentina due to its debt being unsustainable. Got it. Great. Thanks. That's a, um, that's a good rundown. So it sounds like um, there's uh, a lot of deliberation going back and forth uh, between the Republic and the IMF. Um, and then there's a few moving pieces with regard to the groups and the funds that are involved. Um, so for those that are unfamiliar, can you just give us a, a summary of, of, of the groups involved and sorry, the groups and the funds that are involved in the matter? So what we know up to now is that there are about uh, three main groups. You have one group which includes Monarch Alternative Capital, Cyrus Capital Partners, VR Capital, that form a steering committee advised by Quinn Emanuel, um, and they are focusing on the 2005-2010 exchange bonds. Then we have a second group which has Oric Clifford Chance as legal advisors and Mansana as a financial advisor to a group that has several hedge funds involved. It's reported that the, it includes Greylock also. Then we have a third group, which is formed by the funds Fidelity and BlackRock, 
and is being advised by White and Case, with Ian Clark as its veteran restructuring advisor. As the groups are still coalescing, there's a possibility that another group could be formed or they could see further consolidation in the future. Got it. Thank you. That's a, that's a really helpful rundown. And then has, um, has Argentina postponed any payments on its bonds yet? Uh, yes. So the latest one was the AF20 dual currency bonds. Um, after being only about able to get 10% of holders to agree to the exchange offer, it decided unilaterally to reprofile the outstanding bonds on February 11th, pushing the maturity of the notes to September 30th. According to the government, many holders refused to participate because they wanted a short-term security linked to the dollar instead of the local peso denominated notes that the government is offering. But since then, the government has continued to announce new offers, providing holders to exchange the bonds for other peso-denominated treasury notes or bills, but it hasn't been able to get a significant significant amount so far. Argentina's economy ministry has has emphasized that the government's decision to reprofile the AF-20 bonds should not be an indicator of what will happen with the rest of Argentina's peso-denominated debt. However, at the same time, they have stated that the logic behind its decision to unilaterally reprofile the outstanding bonds is linked to its debt negotiation strategy. Okay, got it. So, um, sort of just to recap, you've got um, the the Republic uh, holding discussions with the IMF and and private bondholders, but sort of unlikely that we'll see, see a deal by by March thirty first. So it seems like that deadline, if you want to call it one, is sort of sort of a soft deadline, if you will. Um, you've got. Uh, sort of three separate groups, um, but seems like groups are still coalescing. And then with regard to payments being postponed, you had the uh, AF20 um, currency, ex- or, sorry, dual currency exchange. Um, and then I, I, there, there, there has been some, some uh, interesting developments with some of the provinces as well. We had a standoff with BA province at the beginning of February, and then uh, Chubut announced that it hired J.P. Morgan and Citicorp as uh, financial advisors. And now we have uh, La Rioja um, saying it's facing constraints. Uh, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the the latest development, which happened this week, was that on February 26, La Rioja announced it's facing constraints in paying interest due for its 300 million 9.75% bonds to 2025. That was due on February 24th. Um, the province said that they will use the 30-day grace period to negotiate with bondholders. One of the alternatives that are being proposed by the government is selling short-term peso-denominated notes on the local market to raise funds. This was according to La Rioja's cabinet chief in an interview he gave, gave to Argentine Press. Although the province's leaders didn't say the national government had specifically asked them to delay, uh, the province highlighted that it initiated talks with bondholders following in line with the national government's debt sustainability plan. Local news sources such as Infobuy have cited interviews with local provincial leaders claiming that the Republic of Argentina has been asking prov- provinces to restructure their debt payments in line with their debt restructuring plan. So there is a potential that this could happen uh, in March with six other provinces that are coming up that have debt payments. Uh, Salta, for example, uh, has a $13 million uh, payment on March 16th, followed by Bay Province on the same day for $57 million. Four days later, you have uh, Jujuy Province, which owes $9 million, 
and Santa Fe is facing maturity on March 23rd for 8.7 million. Uh, and then you have Cordoba that owes 6 million and Chibut with 11.6 million. This is uh, according to uh, InfoBuy, and uh, sorry, um, according to InfoBuy, uh, the six provinces in total owe 105.3 million the month of March. So the the proceeds that were raised um, from the La Rioja bond, what what were they used for? So the proceeds of the notes were used by the province to fund the construction of a wind park. It's called the Araco Wind Park. It was a commercial undertaking in which the province is an 83.5% shareholder and a vitally uh, important infrastructure project for the province. This was according to a letter from Latham and Watkins. And so is the construction on the project finished? No, the the completion of the wind park uh, was affected by delays, which La Rioja's province cabinet chief said was part of the reason why the the government decided to delay interest payments as the revenue from the wind park was being counted on for their payment. Got it. So you have the funds that were raised for a project. The project does not seem to be finished. Um, are the bonds secured by any assets related to the project? No, they do not appear to be secured by pledge revenues from or a lien in respect of the, the park, uh, Parque Araco assets. Um, but in the indenture, it says the La Rioja 2025 notes are direct general unconditional and unsubordinate obligations of the province. Got it. So sounds like they are unsecured. Okay, that's interesting. So we'll uh, we'll continue to monitor those developments, especially with the uh, the Rio House province, because it sounds like that's a situation that's just heating up. Um, all right. So moving on, um, I think the next topic that we wanted to discuss was Vicentine. Um, so Santiago, we'll stay with you. Um, what is what is Vicentine and what what does it do? So Vicentine is Argentina's top exporter of processed soy, and it's one of the country's best known brands in the soy exporter industry in Argentina. Okay, and I think there are um, a few different uh, litigations or, or proceedings, if you will, going on. Um, so let's just dive right in. I think we've got s- several or, or a few, I should say, creditor groups. So how are how are Vicentine's creditors sort of divided? Um, you know, give us a brief overview of the groups and, and how much does each debt hold, how much debt does each group hold? So, Byzantine's creditors are divided among three large groups. You have a group of trade creditors that is owed around $350 million. Uh, Banco Nación, which is an Argentine public bank, which is owed around $18 billion Argentine pesos, or $292 million, out of the over $372.4 million in total owed by the company to public banks. And then you have a, a steering committee of lenders that represents large institutional holders, which is owed a, about $500 million. A steering committee of bank lenders owed about $500 million uh, filed a memorandum with the Southern District of New York seeking discovery from financial institutions, including Bank of America, Barclays, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, and J.P. Morgan, according to Southern District New York court documents accessed by Reorg. Argentina's publicly owned banks, Banco Nacion, Banco Provincia, Banco Ciudad, and BC, are forming a common front to try to recover the debt. The steering committee has had talks with the public bank counterparties, but they are not cooperating to sue for the debt. According to 
um, Banco Nacion's director, Claudio Lozano, who we, we interviewed about this case, uh, Banco Nacion's debt has a priority over debt owed to other creditors. Okay, so I guess by way of background, Vicentine is a, a bankruptcy that's ongoing um, in Argentina. Um, and last week, there was an important decision made in Argentina's provincial court. Um, tell us more about that. Right. So on Monday, in the, the provincial court of Santa Fe's uh, city, Reconquista, uh, it's called the Civil and Commercial Court uh, Number 2, it issued a resolution declaring its jurisdiction's authority to review the recent bankruptcy protection case as indisputable. Uh, the judge, Fabian Lorenzeni, will preside over the case. The resolution also prohibits providers of public services temporarily, te- from temporarily shutting off or interrupting services provided to Vicentine because of obligations due that are tied to the borrowing of such services. And one of the the company's creditors filed an injunction um, to to transfer the uh, to transfer the case, right? Right. There are many creditors that want it to be moved from um, Reconquista to the city of Rosario, uh, Santa Fe. Um, the credit the creditor in specific that filed the injunction is called Caja Forense um, in Santa Fe's province Supreme Court. And uh, they want it to. They want the Supreme Court to transfer Vicentine, Vicentine's bankruptcy protection case, uh, arguing that the majority of the contracts and lawsuits against Vicentine took place in Rosario. This is according to Santa Fe Province's newspaper, uh, El Departmental. Lozano explained to Viorg that the case may be transferred to the city of Buenos Aires or Rosario because the courts are more independent there. And so is the idea then that you want to transfer the case out of the provincial courts to a sort of larger uh, big city court that's seen as more independent uh, and friendlier to creditors? Yeah, that's, this is viewed as much more friendly because Vicentine would have uh, much more of an influence in the, the smaller court in Rinconquista. But... Uh, Creditors would have more influence in uh, the city of Rosario. That's how it's it's viewed usually. Got it. So there's there's they're trying to avoid the risk then that that the the smaller court could be more less favorable. Okay. Okay. That that's interesting. And are there any enforcement actions going on in Argentina? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, there's another case that is advancing against a former president of Banco Nacion, investigating where whether. Uh, 18.5 billion Argentine peso loan to Vicentine was legal. Uh, just like the steering committee in the U.S. filed motions requesting information from Argentina's IRS, the central bank, uh, well, IRS as you know the the tax agency in Argentina, and other public organizations about Vicentine's finances. And you um, you referred to the steering committee. I understand that they filed um, a discovery motion. Um, who are the members of the, the steering committee and uh, can you walk us through sort of what their allegations are, why they're seeking discovery, etc.? Yeah, so you have um, the following global financial institutions that are a part of this. Uh, Rabo Bank, Credit Agricole, ING Bank, IFC, uh, Nativ- 
Natixis. Natixis, thank you. <laughs> and uh, FMO, which is a, a Dutch financial organization that are collectively known as the, the steering committee. And they submitted a memorandum of law with the U.S. District Court of the Southern District of New York seeking assistance in obtaining financial records that the steering committee says are uniquely available in the Southern District and are necessary to get to the truth of a situation that bears all the hall hallmarks of major international international financial impropriety. Got it. Okay, and then and then can you get to um, why they are uh, like what the allegations are and why they're seeking discovery? So the the steering committee alleges that Vicentine owes a group of creditors it represents five hundred million. Uh, according to the memorandum, Vicentine up until recently provide produced financial records reflecting positive cash flow from operating activities, minimal trade payables, and hundreds of millions of dollars of equity value. However, in December 2019, Vicentine collapsed without prior warning and shut down its operations, which, according to the steering committee, revealed it did not have the reserves it previously de declared and actually owed about $350 million to local farmers and grain traders. The committee alleges that Vicentine, between releasing its July 31, 2019 financials and December 2019, failed to advise the members of the steering committee of any change in the com company's financial position, despite being required to do so under various loan documents. So they're seeking discovery on the premise that Vicentine ignored various covenants in its loan documents that prohibit it from selling assets such as its decision to sell a 16.67% stake in Renova for $122 million to Glencore in an effort to raise cash. Vicentine's major transactions were dollar-denominated and often physically cleared through Southern District banks. So the steering committee requested the court's help in obtaining financial transaction records that are critical to guiding enforcement proceedings against Vicentine, which have commenced in Argentina. The Southern District of New York Court accepted the committee's argument and granted the order on February 18th, allowing it to apply for a discovery from financial institutions and issue subpoenas for the production of documents. Okay, great. So we will stay tuned um, to see how the enforcement proceedings, uh, the jurisdictional issues, and the discovery proceedings play out in uh, both Argentina and uh, the Southern District of New York. Um, and in the meantime, let's turn to uh, our uh, comparison of the uh, collective action clauses in the Lebanese and Argentine sovereign bonds. So I'm here with my colleague Lev, who's a uh, covenant analyst. Um, and Lev, uh, for background purposes, can you just walk us through uh, what's going on with Lebanon and the standoff between uh, its creditors? Sure. Th thanks, Kyle. And, and thank you for having me on. So Lebanon is now in the very early innings of what is increasingly looking like it's going to be a very complicated restructuring. Now, the full backstory is long and complicated, but at a high level, I'd say three of the key issues include, first, a fiscal deficit. Le Lebanon's been running a deficit for most of the last decade. This year, it's projected to be about 15% of its GDP. Second, heavy borrowing. To fill that gap, it, it's, it's turned to local banks as well as foreign creditors. And finally, a large current account deficit coupled with a currency peg. Lebanon's currency is pegged to the U.S. dollar, about 1,500 to 1, but the central bank is struggling to maintain that. And Lebanese pounds now trade in a parallel market at a discount of about 
Over the last three, six months, the political situation in the country has become increasingly unstable, and that, that has really brought some of these financial issues to, the, to a head. And of course, the political dynamics really complicate the restructuring negotiations too. The immediate issue causing the standoff is an upcoming maturity of euro bonds, about $1.2 billion in principle, that's due on March 9th. A UK fund, Ashmore, reportedly has a blocking position in those bonds, and they're pushing for full repayment. That puts Ashmore somewhat at odds with both the sovereign and folks who are holding the longer-dated paper, because some of them, particularly PIMCO, have expressed the view that paying the short-term bonds is going to ultimately reduce their recoveries. This week, Lebanon retained advisors, Cleary Gottlieb and Lazard, and they've also requested technical assistance from the IMF. How much debt does the, the nation have, and how would you sort of look at that, the way that that debt is split or characterized? In, in total, um, Lebanon has about $87 billion in debt, which is a bit over 150% of its GDP, and the IMF forecasts that's going to only increase further. Um, I think of the debt as basically falling in three buckets. First, to multilateral organizations and some foreign governments, particularly in Europe and the Middle East, Second, local currency-denominated debt. It's about $50 billion equivalent, and that's held largely by Lebanese domestic banks. And finally, it's about $30 billion of euro bonds, which are denominated in U.S. dollars and relatively tradable on the market. Most of that is held by U.S. European funds. Some of the big holders that we know of are Franklin Templeton, Pimco, and Ashmore. And how much of this debt uh, is maturing in, say, the next three years? Sure. In the next three years, there's about $30 billion principal maturing, including about $6.5 billion that's U.S. dollar denominated. There's also about $10 billion of coupon payments, most of which is on the local bonds. Now, U.S. Fed data suggests that Lebanon has about $30 billion in foreign reserves, but that's been declining very quickly. And only a small portion can really be used for debt payments because of first the currency peg and also the government's significant import needs. And is there, is there a significant difference in the way that these 2020s or these, the near-dated bonds are trading versus uh, some of the longer-dated? Yeah, that, that's a great question, Kyle. And the bonds really are trading in two pretty distinct bands. The short-dated maturities, which uh, total about $2.5 billion, and they're maturing out in March, April, and June, they're trading in the mid-40s to mid-50s uh, for, for the March, March maturity. Now, that's far above the long-dated bonds, which are trading from the mid mid 20s to low 30s. Um, interestingly, just over the last week, after reports of the advisor hires and the IMF uh, request for technical assistance, the <clears throat> Lebanon's bonds have, have dropped in price across the term structure. Um, the actually the April bonds fell off the most, dropping about eight and a half points. But maturities in um, in 2022 and 2025 were down by about five six and a half points respectively. Interestingly, the March and June maturities are the only ones that have really held steady. Great. Okay. And so last time we were on the podcast, uh, we had um, Lee Buchheit with us and we had a very long discussion about collective action clauses, um, which can be used by a sovereign to bind creditors across different bond series uh, to a restructuring. How do CACs factor into the equation here? Um, are they are those clauses, uh, first of all, in the Lebanon bond documents? Um, and ca- can Lebanon use them to its advantage vis-a-vis these short-dated bonds? Yeah, that's another great question, Kyle. And, you know, I think the collective action clauses are definitely going to be key to their structuring here. Um, taking a, st- a step back, as I know you discussed last time with, with Lee, who certainly knows far more about these issues than, than, I, than I do, um, collective action clauses can be used to change what are called reserve matters. So it's basically financially important terms like 
principal term and interest and payment dates um, with the consent of, of a large enough portion of holders. So they're really important in a sovereign restructuring because unlike, uh, say, corporates, there isn't a bankruptcy court to, to bind folks and override bond covenants. So in, in <clears throat> you know, the way I, I think of the question is really it comes down to whether you can modify all the bonds at once or if you have to do it series by series and then what the applicable percentages are that, that you have to get in terms of uh, credit or consent. Great. And how do the the... How do Lebanon's CACs compare with Argentina's? Sure. You know, Lebanon's, I, I would say, are all things equal, much less issuer-friendly than Argentina's. Um, the, the Europe bonds all require, uh, all have, <coughs> excuse me, series by series collective action clauses, which requires Lebanon to go out and get consent from each series of bonds. And so the Euro bonds are split into about 30 different pieces, and, and they would have to really negotiate with each separate group. Um, all things equal, that meaningfully increases the the leverage that holdout creditors can have. Got it. So how much would you need um, to block each series? Sure. So for the, the 2020 bonds, the um, March maturity has about $1.2 billion outstanding, $700 million for April, and $600 million for June. So to block, um, with respect to the March maturity, you need about $300 million, then $175 million for April, and about one hundred and fifty for June. And does ha- does does Ashmore have um, the requisite amount to block? To does Ashmore have enough to constitute a blocking position? So it it's been reported that Ashmore has a blocking position in the March bond, and some sources have suggested they they also have built up blocking positions in both April and June. And I suspect that that the really creditor friendly uh, creditor friendly collective action clauses are probably part of how they got comfortable building such a large position in, in a pretty distressed sovereign. Great, and now. Um what are some some upcoming issues uh, that we should be on the lookout for? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's a really fast moving, fascinating s- situation. But I think in, in the near term, the two key things that um, we're following really closely are first the March payments, and second the creditor group dynamics. It's been reported that uh, Greylock, a, a really experienced uh, sovereign debt specialist, is, is leading one group, and it's going to be interesting to see to the extent to which some some of the larger mutual fund groups either join those folks or, or maybe split off and form their own group. Um, looking out towards the you know, medium to longer term, um, three of the issues that we're watching really closely are, first, the IMF, um, the extent of their involvement, whether they provide funding uh, to Lebanon. I think that that's particularly interesting given how deeply they're involved in Argentina and, and whether their exposure there is going to maybe limit their financial flexibility or otherwise constrain them. I think second, the banking sector has is, is, been really key to uh, facilitating Lebanon's borrowing so far. And, and it's a huge part of the economy. Uh, bank assets are about two and a half times GDP. Um, and domestic banks have been really heavy buyers of the sovereign debt. Some of them are, are holding you know, between half and 70% of their assets in various forms of the sovereign paper. So that really complicates restructuring because deleveraging the sovereign means possibly bankrupting the banking sector. But I think particularly for distressed investors, that can create some really interesting opportunities, both for picking up assets at a discount and potentially taking control investments in parts of institutions or even even whole banking institutions. And finally, the energy and utility sector is also really interesting. The state-controlled power utility, which is basically a monopoly provider, that's been heavily distressed as well, and it's been a big liquidity drag on the sovereign too. Um, At the same time, just this week, Lebanon broke ground on some some offshore natural gas developments. So I I think the energy and power space is, is something that we're also looking at closely, and it's an area that could provide some interesting opportunities as well. 
That's great. Um, thank you so much for that rundown. And Santiago, thanks so much uh, for your overview on Argentina. We'll, we will be following uh, both of these situations as they develop over the course of the year. And thanks to our listeners as well. Thanks, all. And thank you for listening to another Reorg Weekly Review. As always, find all of our podcasts on the site or iTunes or SoundCloud. This has been The Week in Reorg, and I'm Connor Skelton.